C64s in space. More about this and other stories on This Week in Retro. High-resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Have retro games psychologically damaged you? C64 powers deep space outpost. Lost Asylum, a work in progress. An Amiga 2000 mechanical keyboard. All this, plus our community question of the week on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. So, John, before we kick off today, first of all, how are you, sir? Doing great. Doing great, Neil. Good. Good. Me too. Me too. And just a quick reminder that the RMC charity calendar is still on sale with 100% of profits going to local charity all sorts. Uh, It's a calendar made up of uh, retro computers and consoles behaving badly. Looks great. Uh, It's less than a tenner and you can get it at rmcretro.store. So please do go and support the cause and get one. Um, There's also links in the show notes you can go and click on if Duncan would be kind enough to put them there. Now, um, into our first story. Uh, It's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek story to kick us off today, John. It's submitted by a regular listener, Paul, a.k.a. Hermski. Thank you, Paul. And it's hosted on thedailymash.co.uk. So clearly this is a satirical story. But at the heart of any good satire is always truth. And I think this story rings true with a lot of us. The headline to the story is, What Psychological Damage Have You Suffered from 1980s Computer Games? (laughs) And it reads... New research suggests gaming can improve well-being, but today's games aren't the maddening frustration fest of the 1980s. Find out how you've been mentally scarred. Now, I should point out that we're not trying to make light of any psychological conditions that people are dealing with here, but we're really reflecting on something that I often hear people say, and I'm sure you you do too, John, when we're talking about this retro hobby of ours. We always hear people say older games were harder than newer or present day games always hear that wherever i go so before we explore the article further what's your position on this john are you a hardcore older gamer or do you think new games are just as hard well i do think that by and large older games were more difficult but in most cases i don't think they were actually designed that way um in the old days especially in in the bedroom coder scene uh in britain and other places the whole concept of third-party playtesting was largely unknown. So what you had was the designer of the game playing levels over and over and over again just to make sure that they worked and they didn't crash the game. And when you do that, of course, you tend to get really good at the game and you don't see the difficulty from the viewpoint of a new player. So um, also, as anyone who's read 80s computer gaming magazines, uh, the press was much more obsessed with how many total levels there were in a game, how many screens there were in a game, rather than whether the game actually presented a fair difficulty curve. Wouldn't you agree with that, Neil? I think that's fair enough, yeah. And I think it's like any kind of creative medium, whether you're writing a book, doing a painting, the, the more you stare at this thing, the uh, the more immune you get to it, I guess, the, the less you see the detail, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're playing over and over again, what you think is a, an average difficulty game might well be completely impossible to the rest of us and i think we saw a lot of examples of that um also i think people in the modern day fail to factor into the equation that when we played these games a lot of us were kids and we had so much more time to play them so we were we were just more practiced at them ourselves um so when we go back and try and play them now they seem extremely difficult because we don't have the same amount of time to sink into them 
I don't know, just a just a theory. Anyway, back to the article in which they've picked five examples of games which may have caused you psychological <laughs> effects. Uh, they include Manic Miner, of course, the pixel-perfect platformer that drove us all insane in the 80s. The article says that this game will give you a permanent 40-point reduction in IQ and a visceral loathing of classical music thanks to the incessant tinny loop of Hall of the Mountain King. Is it Hall of the Mountain King or just yeah. Hall of the Mountain? Yeah, yeah it, is, the Mountain it King, is. Yeah. Um, do you think that's a fair assessment, John, of Manic Minor? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I find the music in Manic Minor much more of a psychological gauntlet than the gameplay itself. Yeah. Um, Manic Miner came at a time when you didn't really have music in ZX mm-hmm. Spectrum games. So it was kind of... Some, might, some might not call this music, Neil. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, it is borderline, isn't it? But, you know, they do. there is a picture of a piano on the screen, just That's in case true. you're unsure, to say, look, this is music because there's a piano on the screen, <laughs> even though your ears are bleeding. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, another one on the list is Elite, which I'm quite surprised to see on the list. Uh, this is the classic space trading game and it's assessed as such in the article. It will give you anger issues and an obsession with high profit margins on drug smuggling, resulting in a stay in a Bolivian prison later in life. Does that ring true, John? Have you done a stretch? This one doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I understand the uh, what the, the point the article is trying to make, but you know, not only is Elite a, a pretty easy game to get into as far as the genre is concerned, uh, I'd actually call it a pretty relaxing experience. Um, it's a game you control the pace of, and if you decide not to go the pirate hunting route, uh, for the most part, uh, it's a game where you can just sit back and chill and, and do your space trucking enterprise. So I, I don't get this one, Neil. I agree. Um, Elite is not a game where it's 100% action 100% of the time. It's not pixel-perfect jumping. Yes, it could be frustrating if you've been grinding for hours and then suddenly space pirates just destroy you. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it's it's a game to relax and cruise around the the universe and and quite literally take stock of things, take stock Mm -hmm. of the stock in the back of your spaceship and plan on the map on your wall where you're going to go next. I guess there are different ways of playing Elite, but I, I wouldn't say it's uh, it's by default a frustrating game. So that that's a controversial one for me. Um, uh, the last game that we'll touch on, and there are more in the article, is one that's come up a few times recently and, and a game that I absolutely love, and it's Chucky Egg. Uh, and it says, this is a game in which you collect eggs in a vast menacing chicken coop full of monstrous human-sized hens and a giant menacing duck. <laughs> uh, this game will give you a crushing sense of, fu- of futility of existence and ornithophobia, or the fear of birds. John, can you still look a duck in the eye? Chucky Egg did nothing but increase my love for our feathered friends, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Um, for me, yeah, I- I've got no problems with with birds, but um, perhaps a fear of milkshakes, because that's the game I was playing when I tipped the milkshake all over my Amstrad CPC as a kid. I, d- I don't know if there's a term for fear of milkshakes. <laughs> there should be. Let us know in the comments if there is such a thing. There, there seems to be a term for a fear of pretty much anything you can come up with, but um, I'm not sure about milkshakes. Um, lactophobia, I don't know. So, Maybe so. Like you that. never know. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, you know, it's a tongue-in-cheek, it's a fun article, and, and it reminds us that not all retro gaming should be remembered through rose-tinted glasses. Uh, if I were to add one of my own suggestions to the list, I would probably add Ghouls and Ghosts. That's not there. Uh, I find that frustrating because I find it to be such a good-looking, atmospheric, playable game 
lovely mechanics in that game. I just I, I love everything about it, apart from the fact that I don't get to see the game because it's so brutally difficult. Um, and it doesn't feel right cheating or, or pumping the, the emulated coin up full of credits to get to the end. I feel like I need to grind and get better at this game, which makes it incredibly frustrating because I want to see more of it. Uh, John, how about you? Have you got anything that you want to induct into the frustrating game Hall of Fame? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think since this article is coming from the dailymash.co.uk, I think that they want to focus in on, uh, you know, the games from the UK. But there's any number of uh, Japanese platforming games from the 8-bit era that you can include, uh, including the Castlevania games where when you get hit, you get knocked back, which leads to no end of frustration. Um, if you've ever played uh, Top Banana before on the Amiga, that game uh, has caused me permanent psychological damage, <laughs> for sure. It is one of the most disturbing and just mind-numbingly horrible games that's ever been created. So I highly recommend it to all of our listeners out there. Uh, it is uh, it is a game to remember. But I can't help but feel that uh, this article may be trending in the clickbait uh, genre. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I know it's hard to believe from a site with a name like The Daily Mash, where you know, you're getting these probably these lists every day but i have a feeling these games were plucked out of thin air to uh, meet the author's quota for the week but i hope not i hope some serious <laughs> thought went into this yeah um also just thinking about it uh, another game that's frustrating for a different reason when i was a kid was um little computer people which i'm sure oh yeah played. that's frustrating in its own way yeah, absolutely it was frustrating <laughs> because i rode my bike over to the to the video rental store where they were selling it bought it furiously rode back loaded it up and then realized it, it, it's not really a game in the it's traditional sense of the game. <laughs> you know, smashing my joystick around going, well, how do I make him pull his gun out? How do I get out of this house? Right. You can't. It's just, it's just, it's like a, a Tamagotchi style uh, experiment. So that was frustrating in its own sense. Uh, but maybe I should have just read the reviews before spending my money on it. It's my own, my own fault. Um, it, this could well be a good question of the week, I think. So get thinking, uh, what are your most frustrating games? Uh, check out the article. There's a link in the show notes. And um, yeah, we'll do question of the week at the end of the show today to get your thoughts. Now, before we go on to story two, um, there's going to be a wardrobe change if you're watching on video. And it has absolutely nothing to do with uh, technical difficulties we were having recording yesterday. Right, John? Right. Nothing to do with it at all. <laughs> okay, let's do it. <laughs> Neil, when you think computers in space, <laughs> what springs to mind? Uh, well, uh, NASA is the obvious one. Um, all that space hardware that's out there. Uh, that's at one end of the spectrum. Space hardware flying around the Earth, perhaps mm -hmm. at the moment, being blown up by other space hardware. There's stories going around at the moment. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that in the news. The, uh, uh, the Russians, I think it is, experimenting with destroying space hardware. Space lasers, space yeah. Space lasers. We're into that part of human history now lasers in space <laughs> yes <laughs> um, and then at the fictional end at the other end um holly from red dwarf is one that springs to mind always loved holly yeah yeah why, why is that john why are we talking about space hardware well a sharp-eyed member of our subreddit community has glimpsed one of these interstellar computers but it turns out they're well computers from the past uh Hastian Z, who is one of our subreddit contributors, spotted not one, but two classic computers in a recent episode of Doctor Who. Uh, in Series 13, Episode 1, which is the episode titled The Halloween Apocalypse, 
uh, a Commodore 64 cleverly painted black to hide its origins and a Spectrum Plus 2 were spotted among the computers controlling the observation outpost called Rose. Uh, Neil, I've got to ask, are you down with the TARDIS? Are you a Doctor Who fan? Um, uh, not a hardcore Doctor Who fan, no. I, I think the episode you're talking about is the one that aired last week. So I think we're talking about oh, bang okay. up to date Doctor Who. Uh, if it's the one I'm thinking of. Um, I've been watching it since when I was a kid, I think Colin Baker and Sylvester McCoy. I definitely remember a lot of Sylvester McCoy episodes. Um, he had an assistant called Ace, I think, towards the end, I remember. And then we had this hiatus where Doctor Who just vanished from our screens for years and years and years before the the, the more recent series, which um, I say more recent, it must have been over a decade ago that it came back again. But uh, yeah, I've been watching it. it came, they came back with Christi Christopher Eccleston, wasn't it? That was the Doctor who who came back for the new ones. Um, mm. But don't get me wrong. No, I'm not a hardcore fan. I, I'm not one of those people that know the show inside out and complain if certain storylines don't tie up or contradict themselves. I just enjoy it for the, the silly fun that it is. Um, I'm a casual viewer, I guess. I've certainly not been to a convention dressed as the Doctor, and I think I think if we put a, <laughs> not yet, no, anyway. I think if we put a colourful stripy scarf and a hat on you, I think you would you would pull off a good Doctor Who impression. I would love nothing more <laughs> than to put on a stripy stripy scarf and a hat. You know, I've got to be honest with you though. I've never watched a complete episode oh, of Doctor on. Who in my life. I it's I started watching it when it was the the new series came back you know ten or fifteen years ago and uh, I just uh, I got it I got distracted and I never went back to it and uh, I have a feeling it's a show I'd like but uh, I just you know I, there's there's only so much TV watching time and it's really sad because I'm totally a cultural anglophile uh, I love the BBC and, and tons of British programming but this is just something that that has passed me by but maybe maybe this is going to inspire me Neil to dig deep into the uh, into the catalog so can you tell me uh what rosie which is this observation outpost is used for and and why they might need a spectrum to keep this thing in the air well i i have to admit i didn't spot the spectrum myself maybe i wasn't paying close enough attention uh it surprises me because as a, as a retro fan when a retro computer or any computer appears on the screen a tv show or a, a movie it usually just sticks out like a big red flashing light your eye is drawn to it immediately you <laughs> right. always see these things don't you so i must have i must have looked away when it was on there but um if it's the episode i'm thinking about the most recent one um rose is this outpost and and there's something called the flux uh, it turns up and it's erasing planets and it, it's messing around with time itself uh, and the only mm. thing apparently standing between the the complete destruction of humanity uh and time uh is a zx spectrum is that right is that is that what's holding everything back <laughs> keeping, wow. keeping time in you never would have thought yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, I think this is more than likely a nod and a wink to the retro gaming community out there. Uh, there's nothing more humorous to your average geek on the street than a bit of technological anachronism. Um, but what I wonder is, is this an ongoing thing in the series as far as you're aware? Oh, um, I would say I'm not a hardcore fan, so I, I'm, I've not spotted them before. I'm sure I have spotted uh, retro computers in Doctor Who way back. Um, every now and then you see a keyboard and you think, yeah, that's a C64 or something like that. I don't know. It would be interesting to know if there is a retro computing fan in the uh, in the Doctor Who team. I'd love to know that. Maybe they've put it in there on purpose. But I'm inclined to say, knowing the BBC over the years, it's probably just what they had in the props department. The, the first computery thing that they could lay their hands on, grab it, 
spray it with some black spray paint and, and slap it in there, job done. Now there's an RMC road trip I'd love to see. <laughs> Neil visits the BBC props department. <laughs> and cries at everything that's been spray painted and destroyed. Right. Yeah. <laughs> now, I guess Doctor Who isn't technically set in the future, but it does bring to mind all of the sci-fi technology of the past and how some of it looks slightly ridiculous today. Um, for examples, I found this Gizmodo article we'll link to in the show notes that lists 12 quote-unquote futuristic worlds where everybody uses obsolete technology. Um, some of my favorites from the list include Red Dwarf, which you already mentioned, mm -hmm. where in the far-off spacefaring future, everyone still uses VHS cassettes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and uh, back to the Future 2's uh, 2015, their version of 2015, it featured uh, fax machines as the dominant form of wow. remote communication. If you remember when Marty's dad gets fired, the 87 fax machines go yeah, off. So yeah. it's always interested this it's interesting to see how people envisioned our future to be there was a lot going on in in the back to futures wasn't there there was um there was an arcade cabinet wasn't there with a, i think it had an nes in there in the corner we've yeah. seen in the past <laughs> yeah and the wild the gunman arcade machine um, yeah <laughs> alongside a hoverboard as if the two technologies were that aligned i i, I don't know but um, also i must say you're a brave man saying that I, I think you said a moment ago technically doctor who isn't set in the future these are the kinds of things i'm scared to say that's with true. doctor hardcore doctor who fans out there go no yes it, it does go into the future so you're completely wrong but i will not be offended be if you correct me harshly in the comments <laughs> feel free <laughs> <laughs> so again hats off to hashian z for spotting some classic computers in doctor who and if you have a favorite piece of obsolete tech in a future sci-fi world let us know about it in the comments john we're going to have a quick look now at a game which is being worked on for our beloved Commodore Amiga. It came to our attention through coverage on the YouTube channel uh, 005 Agima, and that's Amiga 500 backwards, if you were wondering. And uh, Chris, who hosts the channel, takes a trip to the Perth Amiga user group down under. And uh, it's a gathering, which is a lot of fun to, to watch. It reminds me of the Southwest Amiga group that we have over here, just a coming together of Amiga fans, bringing all of their hardware, enthusiasts showing off what they've got, upgrades that they've put in their machines, uh, games that they like to play, and just having fun. And um, halfway through this video, up pops Dario Sorbello. And he's developing a game called The Lost Asylum, or just Lost Asylum. There's no the, sorry. And uh, he's showing it off on his Amiga. The game, he predicts, is about a year off being finished, so there's lots of work to do. It is a hobby, after all. He's not, not doing this full-time. And he's building it called, using something called the Scorpion Engine. And if you've not come across the Scorpion Engine, it's a game development tool that you can use on your modern PC, so it gives you a nice working environment. You can compile the game. I think it actually supports multiple platforms. Um, I think I've heard of Scorpion being used on, on other other platforms have you have you mm. come across scorpion before john whenever i read about the scorpion engine i always hear it referenced in with the amiga but that oh, doesn't okay. mean that it's not compatible i'm not saying that it's not i might be thinking of there's lots of engines like this that give you the convenience of a modern yeah there's the red red pill engine is another one that comes to mind so yeah right yeah yeah so um yeah and when i look at this engine if you go and look at the scorpion engine it, it actually looks really nice to work with and it makes me go yes i immediately want to go out and start making amiga games but of course a good game dev tool isn't the secret source to a good game it helps it helps but it takes a whole lot more than that to make a good game so Maybe one day I'll get around to trying it. Anyway, John, back to Lost Asylum. Have you had a look at this game and what are your impressions of it? 
it's it's interesting um i'd summarize it as mario dropped into the world of rough and tumble if you're familiar with that game um, it looks promising uh you know rough and tumble is one of my all-time amiga classics uh but on the other hand since that game already exists you're setting a pretty high bar for quality um i hope that lost asylum does something to differentiate it from that game other than making the main character look like our favorite italian plumber yeah yeah uh, rough and tumble that i was racking my head when i watched this trying to think of the name of the game that it made me think of and it's exactly that i couldn't i couldn't place the name uh i can see lots of influences in the game though it's a side-scrolling run and gun style game a bit of grisor in there that's the first run and gun game that always comes to mind when i see these things uh you've got cute sprites you've got a kid as the main character in as you say mario like colors he's even got sort of red dungarees and a red hat on there um i'm seeing some classic amiga effects in there like a, a copper skyline that runs down mm -hmm. the screen behind the the background um i don't think i saw watching this i don't think i saw any parallax scrolling yet which is kind of a classic amiga effect that right. the, the machine used <laughs> to show off but it is early days so that might creep in you never know but overall um i think it looks pretty decent you know it's definitely something that i would describe as looking uh, more like a, a professional, more like a commercial game than a hobby game. You know, mm -hmm. sometimes you see games made in, I don't know, let's say Amos, something like that. And it can be an excellent game, but there are just these telltale signs that it was made in Amos or, you know, some other Blitz Basic or some other package like that. Do you know what I mean, John? Oh, yeah. Uh, the game that immediately comes to mind is Super Skid Marks. Uh, that was coded in Blitz Basic. Uh -huh. And uh, when you see the menu screen, the menu screen looks like, I mean, it is just a, the most plain Jane, really awful looking uh, menu screen I've ever seen in a Mii game, which is a shame <laughs> because the actual game is is fun. You know, who doesn't like Super Skid Marks? Uh, these, all of these, you know, sort of games have a, a flavor to them. I'd say that, I wouldn't say, I'd say that this one also it does kind of look like a scorpion engine game everything looks really crisp and clear um in a way that i think almost looks unnatural not saying that this is a bad game or that the scorpion engine isn't good i i just i feel like it does look like a modern a, a game that's been coded on one of these modern development platforms but uh that that doesn't bother me of course you know i'll play if this thing is good i'll, I'll play it um one thing i always worry about with scorpion engine games though are the system requirements um a lot of a lot of times to get a game running in a decent clip you need either an accelerated amiga or at least an 040 and uh not to keep harping on about the genius that is rough and tumble but it managed to run like a dream a dream on ocs ecs machines with just one meg of chip ram and that's really where the the the, the talent and the ability of the programmer shines through is a, you know it's not the engine it's not the platform it's it's how good are you at ringing out the best that it can it can give you and uh the the fact that you know rough and tumble looks better than most aga games is is proof positive that, that the development team over there and i wish i think it might have been renegade that did that um they they were pros real pros but i do wish uh the lost asylum guys all the luck in the world and uh i just hope that they try and optimize the game to run on something like a stock 1200 yeah i guess if they're using an off-the-shelf engine like scorpion there's always going to be an element of overhead because the engine's designed to cater to whatever type of game you want to make it's not optimized for just a running gun game or you know just a puzzle game there's always mm -hmm. going to be a, a degree of overhead so right. um, I, I, you can't blame the guys for not being able to optimize it completely. Um, 
But then that being said, when you see recent releases like Dread, the Doom clone that came out that runs on an Amiga 500, you know, you look at a game like that and you think, well, there's no reason this couldn't run on an A500. So hopefully, hopefully they'll get it down. And on the look, you described a modern look. I think you could attribute some of that to the fact that it's being captured on modern hardware. So you're not getting any like CRT bleed or blur you're or anything right. like that. You're right. So mm-hmm. I would reserve judgment until we can see it on proper hardware. But a lot True. of people will be playing it through emulation and through modern hardware. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting one. It'd be interesting to know if the art itself is designed to take advantage of a CRT and the color bleed and all of that, or if they're just making it using modern methods. Don't know. Don't know. But um, it's certainly one to watch. Uh, you can lend your support to Raptor Games, who are making it. You can find their YouTube channel in the show notes and also Chris at 005 Agama who uh thank you very much chris for showing us this and the perth amiga user group uh definitely a game to keep an eye on i think neil would you consider yourself to be a keyboard snob uh not snob wouldn't consider myself i mean i'm sat here using this tiny logitech remote keyboard on the (laughs) on the podcast pc here which is i'm pretty horrible to type on but nice and convenient which counters the the lack of a mechanical keyboard or whatever else that you would define as snobbery i think mechanical keyboards are normally the first thing that come up when you talk about snobbery um yeah and, uh, you know, I'm not a snob for the exact switch that you must have on your mechanical keyboard or the amount of pressure that each key needs for an optimal key press. But I do have a mechanical keyboard on my main PC because uh, a super cheap keyboard does does feel super cheap to me. You know, a mid-range keyboard is generally fine. So I would normally spend, well, I think the one I've got was about 50 to 60 pounds, Um that was hard enough for me to spend on a keyboard anymore. I would really, really cringe at. Uh, but that that does seem to get you a really good standard for the snobs entry level mechanical keyboard. And that's good enough for me, I think. Yeah. How about you? Um, I'm whatever the opposite of a keyboard snob is. <laughs> uh, well, really, the, one of the main reasons I'm not a keyboard snob is that, you know, I do so many podcasts and oftentimes because we run such a professional uh, outfit, Aaron and I, that I'm making changes to things on the fly, which uh, makes me need to type during the podcast as we're recording. And I need a super quiet keyboard to do that. And so this, I've got a, a, a cheap Dell wireless keyboard that is very silent. So I can make all of our on the fly changes as we're recording. Um, but it is weird because unlike so many other things in my life where I simply must have the best, uh, the keyboards have always been just, just kind of a thing you type on. Um, don't get me wrong. Uh, I appreciate the heft, the sound of an old IBM model M keyboard. I appreciate the fact you can use it as an offensive weapon. If you need to, that thing is, is, is a beast. Um, but, uh, I haven't found it within myself to go down the route of switching out micro switches and adding RGB lighting, stuff like that. Until now until now (laughs) neil (laughs) i have been smitten smitten by keyboard love which is fitting because this next story comes to us from the one and only amigalove.com we're at amiga heavy show today neil uh a forum user there by the name of gr shaw has created a new mechanical keyboard for the amiga 2000 and it is a thing of beauty Uh, While it fits right in with a big box Amiga, uh, the whole thing uses standard PC keyboard parts, including the case and the keycaps. Uh, Anybody who has waited for years or in some cases are still waiting for those kickstarted Amiga keycaps, uh, you can finally rest easy with another solution. 
instead of going the all custom route, uh, he utilized the, there's a company called the WASD keycap printing service to make special keys like the Amiga key and to get the font on the regular keys just right. Uh, other great features include uh, through-hole soldering only, so you don't have to do any surface mount soldering, which is a nightmare, as you know. Uh, there's an Arduino uh, controller, which is paired with something called the QMK firmware. So all the keys do just what they should. You can you know do custom jobs, and it's got one of those five-pin DIN connectors to plug it right into an Amiga 2000 or 3000. So, Neil, have you had a chance to look at this? What do you think? Yeah, I've had a quite look, uh, a look. It's quite nice, isn't it, John? Um, yeah. It's not an exact replica of an A2000 layout or look, but it is plug-and-play compatible with the machine, which is great because if you if you just need one of those original keyboards, they are not cheap at all if you can even find them separate from a, a whole machine sale. They're very rarely split up. Um there are ways around needing a keyboard with that kind of connector. For example, you can fit a USB adapter inside an Amiga to allow it to use USB keyboards. Some people will put that in and then put a wireless dongle in so you can use a wireless keyboard with it. Um, so, you know, you can get a mechanical USB keyboard on the Amiga. And there are keycaps out there. For example, Steve over at Checkmate has a set of keycaps which he sells with keyboards with his cases but you can get them separately i think i think you can get them separately um but this method is nice because it just plugs straight in i think that's the big advantage to this one here that, that you're talking about mm -hmm. what i'd love to see i'd love to see this adapted for the amiga 500 because the very first amiga 500s that came out of the factory had some interesting differences to what we generally know as an amiga 500 um Namely, it didn't have the A Amiga key. It had the Commodore chicken lips on that key instead. And um, more importantly, they were mechanical keyboards. Oh. And if, if you've ever typed on one, the quality over the spongy Amiga 500 keyboards that we know and love is night and day. It feels really good to use one of those old A500s. So I'd love to see this be successful enough for them to consider doing it for other machines. There was a Kickstarter. You've mentioned people waiting for Kickstarters that never come to fruition. There was one to put a mechanical keyboard in an Amiga 500. Um, that was last year, and that didn't hit target. Uh, I, I don't think it was by the same people. I think quite a few different people have tried to launch Amiga keyboard Kickstarters over the years. Um, it didn't get hit target. I don't know what became of that one, but I am holding out hope that someday we'll see a drop-in mechanical Amiga 500 keyboard. That's what I want, John. That would be nice. That would be nice. And, you know, there's a chance, and by a chance, I mean, somebody posted in the forum right below this saying, wouldn't it be cool if there was an Amiga 1000 keyboard in the works? Every I'm day. taking that as, it's coming, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody who has an Amiga 1000 knows that those keyboards are getting harder and harder to find. Uh, I've got one in the closet right now that is just, it's missing a keyboard, and I can't do anything with it because I don't have a keyboard for it. Uh, if one can be developed that uses that phone cord-like cable of the original, uh, that would be a real game changer for all of the keyboardless A1000s out there. So uh, I hope, I hope in the future that, that that can come to pass. I wonder if those curly phone cord cables are still made, manufactured anywhere. There must be something that still uses them. I would like to hope so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I don't know, this is some breaking news, John. I don't know if you spotted it in the last couple of days, but a company called Simulant, who you may remember tried to kickstart a bunch of modern USB keyboards in the style of retro systems. Um, that kickstarter didn't work out. 
But they have now put a mechanical USB keyboard together with Amiga keycaps, and it looks like they're not kickstarting it. They're just putting it up for pre-order, so people can pre-order that now. And the interesting thing about this is, although it's USB, so you're not putting it straight into your Amiga, it is an official Amiga Inc. product. So they've obviously taken the time to unpick that minefield of Amiga rights and ownerships and get permission to use the name um, Amiga not Commodore, of course. So it's actually mm-hmm. got Amiga on the keyboard there, which um, is interesting. I think it's £100 to pre-order that. So I was talking earlier about my limits of 50 or £60. Does that Amiga name want me to spend? make me want to spend another £40? Well, with my history, probably yes. But I can understand. <laughs> it's, you know, it's getting towards the expensive, but I've seen a lot more expensive mechanical keyboards. I want some reviews. I want to see how this thing is, if it's as nice as a hundred pounds worth of keyboard. So, yeah. so we'll see. And um, Simulant's a great guy. He's the, uh, the mind behind Amiga Addict magazine, uh, oh, Britain's right. best selling Amiga magazine. So, you know, he stands behind the products and he is a true Amiga fan at heart. That was quite the promo, John. Do you need to declare any association with the magazine there off the back of that? <laughs> Full disclosure, Amiga Addict is a sponsor of Amigos Everything Amiga Podcast. Ah, there we go. There we go. I thought there was some connection there. But um, yeah, I mean, he has a history of delivering, certainly with the Amiga Addict magazine and some other products that are in the shop there. So I'm confident that we'll see this come to fruition. The hard work's yeah. been done to get that license. So I'm looking forward to seeing it. And also this Amiga 2001, uh, which you've mentioned there, John. So a big thank you to subreddit user Flatline1972 for pointing the story out for us. It'll get some press on this week's Amigos as well. Neil, last week's community question of the week was Apple II or BBC Micro, which was the better machine? Big fight. So yeah, so we got some some great answers here. Uh, Sedition uh, writes. I feel like the poll could have been, did you go to school in North America or England? Exactly. Uh, (laughs) He said, I learned on the Apple, but I prefer the aesthetic of the Model B. Maybe Um, we need to transplant an Apple II into a BBC case. Maybe that's the perfect combo. That would be the way to go. Chocolate and peanut butter combined. Um, Mega STE isn't beating around the bush. He says, the Beeb, any day of the week. So and that and that was one of our top most upvoted answers. So people right. people aren't interested in reasoning; they just want the cold hard facts. Just pure confidence, no need to give facts or reason. Just any day of the week. Don't That's you, right. Well, fine. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And finally, expounding on that a little bit was Silver Rapid. He said the Beeb was technically the better machine, although it did come out later. Uh, he gives the following as his rationale: It was twice as fast as the Apple II. It had higher resolution graphics modes, up to 640 by 256. A four-channel sound chip as standard. Uh, there was a, a range of interfaces included as the standard. Uh, it had an easy-to-use user port for hobby electronics like the Raspberry Pi GPIO. I'm sure that that was what they had in mind when they when they put this thing out. Uh, novel, a novel coprocessor interface most famously used for testing the ARM, and the included BASIC was considerably better than the Apple II, probably the best one of any 8-bit. And finally, it was about half the price of the Apple II at launch. Well, I think when you consider there is a three or four year age difference in these machines with the Apple II being the the, the younger machine. 1977, um, Neil. 1977. Exactly. It's, yeah. it's impressive that we're even pitching them up against each other and that the Apple II is holding its own and for some beating the BBC Micro, given that that is an eon in technical 
in computer terms, in technology terms. So I think that in itself speaks uh, loud and proud of the Apple. Yeah, but we do appreciate all of the responses, and you can read them all if you head on over to our This Week in Retro subreddit. Uh, Neil, our uh, community question of the week for next week is, what game caused you the most psychological torment? I can't wait to, <laughs> to hear I'm, I'm, some I'm of these responses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so please post your responses in the subreddit, and we'll read the top three most upvoted responses on the air next week. Today's episode of This Week in Retro comes thanks to our partners at Anchor FM. Whether you're new to the game or you have an existing successful podcast, Anchor FM offer a home where you can extend your audience and find new sponsorship opportunities to make it the most successful podcast it can be. That's right, Neil. We love Anchor, and that's why we use them to host This Week in Retro. You should check them out at anchor.fm for more info. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC and John Shawler. It was produced by me, Duncan Stiles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favorite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash This Week in Retro to suggest and vote on stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you'd like to support the show, please check out the links to our Patreon and Coffee pages in the show notes or in the YouTube description. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.